Thank you, choir, for that ministry and music. Well, good morning to you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak to you this morning. We trust Bonnie and Pastor will have a good vacation as they return back to us next Sunday. Um, But this morning we have the privilege of sharing in communion together, which is a wonderful thing. I'd like to start out with uh, an illustration, if I may. I'd like to hold this up to you. This is my wedding band. And for those of you who might have been in my Sunday school class week, the class last week, uh, you would have already heard this story, but I'll try and give it briefly. I lost this wedding band three years ago, and uh, when that happened, I was not on my wife's good side, as you can imagine. And uh, after months of vain waiting, trying to find it, I finally had to bite the bullet and say, "Listen, I uh, I lost it. It's gone." Six months have passed. And she said, and that didn't help either, because now it's been six months without me wearing a wedding band. And so the more I wait, that's just not doing any favors for me. So I said, I lost it. I'm sorry, hon. I have to get a new one. So she reluctantly said, okay, disappointed. Um, But we got a silver one for me then. So the original one started out as gold. Second one was silver. And I wore that for a while until about six months ago when I lost that. If it was funny the first time, It wasn't anymore. (laughs) So I said, "Uh, honey, it's been another three months. I can't find my wedding band. Okay, we'll get you another one. This time it was stainless steel. Okay, so we kept getting down, and I said last week that if we would have gone any further, it would have been barbed wire. So this is where I was at, and uh, and this past week, uh, you might have known that this was Ruth's wedding, okay, last Saturday. And there were a bunch of people over at Bonnie's house, and they were preparing for the wedding. One of the bridesmaids was out in the backyard, standing under a tree, talking to somebody on a cell phone. And they're just kicking around, and they look down, and they see something shiny. They pick it up, and they say, that's strange. It's a wedding band. It was my wedding band. In Bonnie's backyard for three years. Now, I don't know how that's possible. Humanly speaking, how it wasn't mowed over, chopped into tiny bits, caught in the grass catcher, even you think of all the snow that's come in three years. Under a tree, it's been there three years, and now I have it back on my hand. At least now it's not. I could lose it again. I'm not careful. As soon as I got it, Sarah said, that's great. Don't lose it again. Okay? But uh, as, as it was lost, and as I was reflecting on this, how it could have been lost for three years, I just thought to myself, you know, I wonder how long it would have been if somebody else would have found it. You know, maybe the reeds someday move out of that house. Somebody else comes to own it. Maybe somebody's digging up the tree. I don't know. Maybe it would, be, it would have been carried away in the grass catcher, put in, you know, with a pile of the other grass, decomposing, whatever. Somebody would have found it years later. What the, would they have thought? On the outside, you, you would have been able to tell what it is. You could tell it's a wedding band, but on the inside, there'd be some markings. Let's say it was found hundreds of years from now, okay, in a culture maybe that doesn't use wedding bands anymore. Who knows, okay? And, and, and I just thought to myself, I wonder if anybody would be able to gather what the meaning of this thing is. If you look inside, and of course you can't see this close. If you want to see it closer, you can always ask me. Um, it has some markings on the inside and some, some words and some numbers. On, on one side, you can look and it says uh, 62803, okay, with some dashes in between. If you were removed from our culture, you might, I, I just wonder what somebody would have thought of those numbers. Would they have known what those stood for? The other side, it says mine, M-I-N-E, okay? And uh, there's significance behind that. Um, but I wonder if somebody would have known what that is just by looking at it. The other one uh, says, and of course I can't read it up here, 
SS. Oh, missed it. SS six colon three. SS six colon three. So I wonder if somebody else from another culture might know what those things mean. The point is, if you were to find this ring, if you were to be that lucky individual that hundreds of years later you found my wedding band and you were to look at it, you might not understand its complex layers of meaning. Sure, you would know it's a wedding band, probably. Okay, even if we remove ourselves hundreds of years now, people probably would know what this is about. But you might not know what those different numbers stand for. You might not know why we put mine on the inside of our wedding bands. You might not know what SS63 stands for. Okay? And, and when we come to communion this morning, I think we can draw a similar parallel. A lot of times when we come and celebrate communion, we have a general idea of what it's about, right? We know that when we celebrate communion, it's about Christ's death. We're remembering Christ's death. But what I think we often miss is that Jesus embedded a lot more than that into communion. There's a lot more hidden meaning to it. A lot more that was packed into that act of sharing bread and wine with his disciples in the way that he chose. And unfortunately, I think we miss out on a lot of that. And so my goal for this morning is to take communion and unpack that, to explain the elements a little bit more, as it were, so that we might be able to get its fullest meaning as it was intended. And, and when I say that, I don't mean that there's some hidden uh, code embedded in the scriptures, like the scriptures is something we've got to crack open and, and only the select elite of the world can understand it. I hope that's not the case. But these are things that the scriptures, I think, lead us to. Uh, meanings that we are intended to see in communion as we take of it. And there are five things that I have come up with this, this week that I think we should see as we take communion. Maybe you'll find more than that. This is not an exhaustive list. I don't think Jesus said somewhere in the Bible, there are five hidden things here in communion that you're to see. No more, no less. Not four, not six, but five. Okay. But that's what I've been able to see. And if you see more than that, great. But at least I want to point you in the direction of these so that we might have a fuller understanding of what communion is. I think communion has a lot of layers of meaning, and I want to guide us through that in our time that we have together. So, as you have your Bibles open to Luke, you can, you can be open to that passage. Of course, there are many passages in the Bible that speak about the Lord's Supper in each of the Gospels and then also 1 Corinthians. So, my uh, observations are going to be drawn from a lot of those. We're not going to be just relying upon Luke, but it'll be good to have that in front of you as well this morning. And I'm just going to go through each of these, okay? Uh, the first one, perhaps, is one that you might have heard the most of before. And that is that it's designed, communion is designed to teach us that Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. Now, we already said this morning that communion is about remembering Jesus' death. But this thought goes a little deeper than that. Uh, if the statement Jesus died for us would be known as, I don't know, freshman level knowledge, okay? Saying that Jesus is our Passover lamb is a little bit more advanced than that. You could call that your sophomore or junior level knowledge. Okay, we're getting a little bit deeper into the scriptures. Paul makes that distinction in the Bible about things that are basic knowledge and then the stuff that goes beyond that. And, and he says to us, we shouldn't be content just to stay at the basic level, just the milk. Okay, but we want to long for the meat of the scriptures, the, the deep stuff that God wants us to know about what it is we do and say and think. And so Jesus is our Passover lamb. That's a little more deep knowledge, okay? And, and if you don't know anything about the Bible or know very little about the Old Testament, you might be asking the question, what is a Passover lamb? And if you know the answer to that question, great. 
Uh, chalk that up to God's blessing in your life for growing up in the church and parents that may have taught you about that or Sunday school teachers. But it's good for us to re-examine this in case you don't know that or we need a, some reminding. Let's look at the story. We're in Luke 22. And if we start back in verse 13, we see that the Last Supper took place on the event known as Passover. That's our start. So verse 13 reads, They left and found things just as Jesus told them. Then they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So, the Last Supper was a Passover meal. Some people have tried to debate that, whether it was a separate meal from that. It's really hard to take that position when you read Luke, because it's saying, I have desired to eat the Passover. This is the Passover. You can't get any clearer than that. Okay. So Jesus is taking the Passover with his disciples, and we'll see that he's not just celebrating an old event, but he's going to apply new meaning to it. So to understand that a little more fully, we have to ask, what was the Passover originally about? What was Jesus initially celebrating? Well, if we go all the way back to the book of Exodus, we'll find that it was a feast instituted by God back when the Israelites were leaving Egypt under the leadership of Moses. So what did it celebrate? Well, it celebrated God's deliverance of his people out of slavery in Egypt. And the Passover was the final plague against the Egyptians in Exodus 12. You see, at that time, you might remember that Pharaoh made the Israelites slaves. It was a Pharaoh long after Joseph's time, and he didn't really care about what influence Joseph had on the nation, so he decided to use the Israelites for his own benefit, enslave them for 400 years. And God promised after that time he would deliver them out of Egypt, and so he did. And he did so with two unwilling people, Moses and Aaron. Moses especially wasn't really particularly thrilled about going in front of Pharaoh, but he did it anyway because God made that his role. And so when he did... Um, God gave power to him. Not that he empowered Moses in any specific personal way, but God showed his power through him by demonstrating in these ten plagues that he brought about Egypt. Ten terrible things uh, that, he, that he did. Nine horrific plagues came and went, including hail, darkness, frogs, other wonders that you could go back and read about. But Pharaoh still didn't let the Israelites go. And so God dealt with one final devastating blow. He set out to kill the firstborn of every family. And this is where we get the origin of Passover. We read about this in Exodus 12, too. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen as I read. On the same night, God said, uh, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Okay, so that's what God promised he would do, and he did it. Yet in the midst of this, God also caused his Israelite people to be safe from this calamity. If they would only take a spotless lamb and kill it, and take that blood of that lamb that was slain and paint it on the doorposts of their houses, the angel of death would pass over their house. That's where we get the name Passover. Pass over their house and not kill the firstborn of that family. And so the Israelites would be safe. And so night came, and it was just as God promised. All who did not sprinkle the lamb's blood on their doorway were killed um, by the Lord. The firstborn children were killed by the Lord. But the Israelites, who followed the Lord's commands, were safe. And so as a result of this mighty work of God, the Israelites were set free. Moses was able to lead the people out of Israel, uh, sorry, out of Egypt, and, and Pharaoh had no choice but to let them go. 
God saved them. God redeemed them. This practice didn't just happen once. Okay, So if that was all that happened, that would have been the end of the story. Except that God commanded the Israelites to continue to observe this feast every year after that event. When we look at Luke, we find that this is the event that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples, the Passover. Remembered in the way that was commanded all the way back in the time of Moses. However, Jesus didn't just celebrate this ancient feast, but he also gave it new meaning, as we already said. Luke 22.20, if you're still there, look at that verse. It says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. There's something new about it. He's giving us that indication. What's the new meaning? Well, the meaning is that from now on, from this point forward, Christ's followers would no longer be sacrificing a lamb. For Christ was going to offer himself as the perfect spotless lamb on the cross once for all to save all who would believe in him from from their death and judgment. You see, from this time of Moses on, every Passover was celebrated with this lamb that was slain. There was a lamb that was sacrificed each year. Deuteronomy 16, verses 1 through 2 says, Observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in this month he brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God an animal from your flock or herd at the place your Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. So we see in Deuteronomy this was commanded every year. But now Jesus makes it clear that through communion, it would be his own blood that would be spilled out for them. Not just a lamb, not something that they'd have to sacrifice every year, but once for all, his perfect blood would be offered for them once for all. Jesus is that perfect lamb, the fulfillment of what the Passover meal was pointing to. And lest we think we're making too much of this passage, we see that that same teaching is borne out through other parts of Scripture. Go to John chapter 1, verse 29. First chapter of John. And, and we had an excellent message um, from, from Mark before. Um, that was last week. With Pastor Klein Bumgarner. We're going to John now with about John the Baptist. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God. John 1.29 again. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, I don't think that's an accident that he's calling him the Lamb of God of God points to this idea of him being the Passover lamb. If we were to go to Paul, um, he draws a link between Christ and the Passover lamb. He says, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Okay? So those are the words of Paul as well. What is the first thing that we are to remember when we celebrate communion? We remember that we were once slaves to sin. We're to draw this analogy that Christ is drawing for us. Okay? Just as the Israelites were slaves to Pharaoh, slaves in Egypt, we also were slaves to sin and under bondage and deserve to be, to be destroyed. Just as that angel of death was coming to the house of each person to destroy the firstborn from that household, we also we deserve to be judged for the sins that we commit. And, and it's, it's a foreign idea in today's culture to think that even the smallest of sins, even the littlest white lie could earn judgment from God. But anything that we do, even the smallest thing, drops us from that perfection that God expects from us. We fall short. And so because we've not obeyed God fully, as He's commanded us to do, we deserve to be judged. And so we celebrate at at communion, not just that Christ died on the cross for us, 
but that we were once slaves. And through this blood that we symbolically are drinking through the wine, it's not Christ's blood actually, just a symbol. But as we're looking at this, celebrating, uh, observing these elements together, we reminded the fact that this should have been our blood that was spilled. It should have been our body that was broken. We were the ones who deserved to die. We were the slaves. And we have been purchased through the blood of Christ that was spilled on our behalf. That's the first thing we're to remember. Second thing we're to remember is our dependence on Christ. There are other truths bound up in communion. And, uh, and I, as I was saying, the next one is uh, our dependence. That's rooted in the symbology of the bread. Okay, this one's a little more complex. might not be as easy to, to grasp at first, but let me try and draw this out for you. Go to Matthew 26, verse 26. We're going to be jumping around a lot. And this is good. Always good. I, I like technology. I like having things on the screen, and I hope to use that um, at some point when I get to preach in the future. Um, but I've been to places where everything is, is up on the screen, and then there's no need to turn in our Bibles, and I think we lose something out of that, just being able to come to these passages, know the order of our books. Going to Matthew 26, 26. So you certainly will get an exercise in that this morning. Matthew 26, 26. Okay, this is another account of the Lord's Supper. Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Okay? Now, we know when we take the Lord's Supper that we're not actually eating Jesus' body. You know that. But rather, Jesus was using a figure of speech. Nevertheless, I think there's something symbolically being portrayed here when we eat of this bread, um, the body of Christ as communion. Okay, of course there's one level of symbol, and we know that, I think, that it's his body that was broken on the cross. But I think there's another layer of symbol um, that's present for us that we can take from the other words that Jesus taught during his lifetime. As I'm talking here, go to John 6, verses 53 through 58. And we're going to look at a passage there that I think ties this all together. Okay? And, and initially this might sound strange, but I just ask that you'd follow along with me and we'll try and draw the connection here between Matthew 26 and now John 6, verses 53 through 58. I think another image that's meant to be conveyed by this taking of bread is our dependence on Christ as the source of our strength that we feed upon Christ symbolically when we take of communion. And that reminds us of our daily need to feed upon Him. Okay? And, and I think that's drawn out here in this John 6 passage. John 6, 53-58. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate of manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Well, let me tell you how I think that relates to communion this morning. What is Jesus saying in this passage? Well, Jesus is not saying that he wants us to literally eat and drink his blood and his flesh. Okay, I think, I think you know that. There's something else being portrayed here, obviously. What this passage is saying, I think, is that we are to live off of his every word. Okay, this is one of those difficult sayings of Christ. Sounds strange on the outset if we take it literally, but what's Christ saying? I think he's saying he wants us to live and, and move 
in His strength. He wants us to rely upon Him, to rely upon His words. For us to eat His flesh and drink His blood is to be entirely bound up in Him and His teachings and to be about Him entirely. Okay? And, and so I think He wants us to feed upon Him daily. And He makes that comparison between um, His flesh and, and bread in this passage that we just read. Do you notice verse 58 as well? He says, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Actually, it said, this is the bread that came down out of heaven. But I think we understand he's referring to himself. In other words, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And if you notice, he's making a comparison between himself and the manna of the Israelites and Moses. You see that in verse 58. I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. So he's drawing an analogy. He's saying, just like back in the Old Testament when the Israelites were out in the wilderness and they had no food and they would have starved if they were left on their own, they survived because they relied upon the manna which God gave them daily. It wasn't something that they could just store up and and keep for a while and they'd be set for a long period of time. It's something they needed to gather every day in order to survive. In a very real sense, the Israelites were dependent daily upon God for His provision, for Him providing this manna. And Jesus is saying here that in an even greater way, I am that perfect heaven coming down out of heaven. That's why he says out of heaven. That's meant to be the the, the analogy, the pull between uh, the manna and himself. Just as this imperfect manna, this temporary manna came down out of heaven, I am the true bread. I am the true bread. And what are we to see? That just like the Israelites were dependent on, on God every day, dependent upon this manna for sustenance, We are dependent upon Christ, or should be, every day for sustenance, for His sustaining power, for life. And so He says, you need to feed upon Me daily. In an even greater sense than the Israelites fed upon the manna daily, you need to feed upon Me daily. And so when we gather together to partake of communion, I think there's a very real sense. When we hold this bread in our hands, we're reminded that Christ taught, I am the true bread. I'm the true bread that came down out of heaven. And just like we have to take, take of communion, da- not daily, I'm sorry, but regularly, um, it's not something we can take once and then be done the rest of our lives. It's not like baptism where we take communion once, we're done, we're set. It's something that we are commanded to do over and over and over again. I think that serves as a good reminder to us that we need to rely upon Christ regularly, daily even. That as we partake of communion, we're reminded that our work isn't done. We can't just take this once and be satisfied. We need to continually be reminded of Him. The point of of communion at its very basis level is to help us remember. And one of the things I think communion helps us to remember as we partake of it is that we can't do this on our own. We need Christ's help and strength every day of our lives. And so as you look at at this bread this morning that's going to be passed out, that's one thing I want you to think of. I want you to remember that you are dependent upon Christ. We all are dependent upon Christ for our breath every day, for our, our, our purpose in life, for everything that we seek out to do. We are to be reminded by this bread that He is that true bread that can satisfy us, that we need Him daily. It illustrates our dependence, I think. Third thing that we see in communion that we are to remember is our unity with each other. Our unity with each other. And unity is something that we desperately need, I think. Think of all the Christian denominations that exist today. 
Even if you just take the ones that are gospel preaching. Okay, there are thousands of denominations, but we recognize some of them are heretical, some are cults. Okay, even if you take the ones that would affirm with us this morning that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved and trusting in Him through faith, through God's grace, is the only way to be saved. If we all just take, take those churches, okay, just that select group of churches that believe in the gospel, we still have hundreds. We still have hundreds with tremendously different practices than ours, with different doctrinal distinctives. Some practice infant baptism, some practice immersion baptism, some have an elder-run government. Some have a congregational-run church. Some uh, speak in tongues this morning. Some do not, like our own. And so there's a tremendous amount of difference. And unfortunately, we as a church rarely get to express our unity with these different denominations. Okay? Often we see our disunity more than anything. I'm really glad we have our Good Friday service because I think that's one big event during the year where we get to see that, where we have churches that aren't BFC churches come together with us and we express our unity in a very visible way. But, but I personally feel like that's something we can always be growing in, illustrating that unity, because the fact of the matter is if we share in Christ's blood, if we are all believers in the same gospel, then you and I and they, whatever church denomination that might be that preaches the gospel, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We are united. We're of the same family. And so a a symbol like communion is so needed because this illustrates that unity that is so often lacking in our outward lives. Um, Unity is expressed by the fact that we partake of the same communion that they partake of. The, The Assembly of God Church down the road partakes of communion just like we partake of communion. The Baptist Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Congregational Church, whatever it is, whatever church you think of that preaches the gospel... That's one thing, uh, and I believe this is, is something the pastor pointed out in a previous sermon. You know, it doesn't matter where you go. That's one thing that's common of, of every group that calls itself a church. We all practice communion. And in, this, in that sense, this unifies us. All of us are following Christ's commands that he left for us so many years ago. We are all taking of this bread and cup and remembering his death. And as we do so, we are reminded that this isn't just our cup. This isn't just our bread. Okay? It isn't just us that God meets with this morning and everybody else not so much or that we as a Lebanon BFC church are somehow more blessed than the other gospel preaching churches in in Lebanon County or throughout the world we are united and and if I could put an even more positive spin on it it's kind of cool because we're united with all of those saints who have gone before us saints that lived a thousand years ago partook of communion in the same way that we do today saints that live in Africa Okay, a place that we might not even ever go in our lives. In England, in Russia, in India, wherever you want to go in the world, partake of communion. And that unites us with them. Because we are all sharing in the same table, the same cup, the same bread. And it's helpful for us to remember, in this world of disunity, that we are all together in one purpose. No matter where we worship, if we preach the same gospel, we are all trying to reach people for Christ. And so as we partake of this cup this morning, I want you to remember that we're not in this alone. We are a small percentage, those of us who are gathered here. We're what? Maybe 300? In the world of believers today, that's nothing. That's nothing. We are part of something much bigger than that. And we all share together in this unity in preaching the gospel and proclaiming God's kingdom. That's exciting to me. Number four, communion illustrates our participation in Christ's sufferings. 1 Corinthians 10.16. Let's, let's go there. 1 Corinthians 10.16. I said 
that uh, the communion story is found, or the Lord's Supper, uh, however you want to describe it, is found in the Gospels and also in 1 Corinthians. And so it's good to look at a passage from there too. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. It says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the blood of Christ? I want you to think of those words for a little bit. For here we see that taking communion is not only something that joins us to one another, but it joins us with Christ and His sufferings. That's kind of cool. The communion has both a horizontal function and a vertical function. So we're joined together in unity with others who take of the same communion and believe the same gospel. But it also says here in this, this verse that our taking of communion is a participation in the sufferings of Christ. And that's a good reminder. good reminder for us as Western Christians who don't face a whole lot of persecution. There are places in the world, especially if you were to go to, let's say, a, a place where the Muslim faith is state-run. And to be Muslim is all but required. And, and, and if you don't follow that, that faith, you could be hunted down, you could be imprisoned, you could be killed for what you believe. If you try and evangelize publicly, your life is in danger. We don't face that. And not just from, I don't have anything against the Muslim faith specifically. There are plenty of atheists in the world. There are plenty of people who are Buddhist. Plenty of, of any other faith or no faith at all that would persecute the, the people who, who name the name of Christ. Okay? So hear what I'm saying. But what I'm trying to get across this morning is that we live in a place of relative safety. So being reminded of the sufferings of Christ and our participation with them is a good thing to be reminded of because we often live a life of ease in this regard. We are committing ourselves as we partake of communion to share in those sufferings of Christ. I don't know if you realize that. This is one of those things I think that gets overlooked. We, we come here and we say, okay, we're remembering the death of Christ. That's good. That's great. And remember that Christ died for me. But do we realize that in taking communion, we're doing more than that? It says in 1 Corinthians again, that by taking of this, this cup, we are participating in the blood of Christ. In other words, you can think of I don't know, think of any, any movie that you, you've seen before where maybe there's this, this group of people gathered together, maybe an organization, and, and they're all drinking their allegiance to this leader, whoever might be in, in that particular book or movie or whatever you might picture in your mind. Okay? In, in, in a positive sense, we are very much drinking our allegiance to Christ. We are reminding ourselves that we are committed to Him. That in taking on the benefits of being a believer in Christ and, and the forgiveness of sins and, and being reconciled to God. We're not just in it for the good stuff, but we recognize that there's a responsibility that comes with being a follower of Christ. We're not only committed to uh, being saved and, and enjoying all the fruits of heaven, we're also saying, Christ is my Lord. And if He suffered, how much more should I be willing to endure that same suffering in the way of my Master? I'm going to read some words to you just to remind us of this, this principle John 15, verse 20. Our Master said to us, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his Master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. And 1 Peter 2, 21. To this, meaning the calling of suffering for righteousness' sake, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in His steps. And then 2 Corinthians 1, 5. 
For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. See, there's a connection being drawn in each of these. One that we can't escape. If we really want to name the name of Christ, if we really want to enjoy all the benefits that come by being a child of His, then we need to recognize that we are also saying implicitly that we commit to follow Him and to follow after His way. And Christ's way was not easy. Christ's way was one marked by sorrow, by suffering for doing what was right in the sight of God. And, and so, too, it is with us. When we take communion this morning, the fourth thing we are to remember is that we are committing ourselves to living a life of servanthood after His example, even if it means suffering to the end. Last point. Points us to the coming supper of the Lamb. And this is something I was able to preach on a few years back when I had the privilege of preaching on communion to you before. Matthew 26:29 says, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Last thing we're to remember is that this isn't the Last Supper at all. It's a rather unfortunate title, actually. Because Christ said to us that this isn't the last time we will share this with Him. We remember Him, yes, in the, in the period of time that exists now where Christ is removed physically from this earth, where He is reigning with the Father in heaven. We must celebrate it without Him. But Christ promised that someday was coming when He will return and we will share this cup and this bread with Him in heaven, in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the recreated heavens and earth, in what's known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's promised to us in the words that we just read and then described with a little bit of detail in Revelation 19. Chapter 19, verses 6-9 through 9 says, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to wear. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So as we celebrate communion this morning, we're not just looking backwards to a time where Christ died and celebrated with His disciples as just a time in the past. We're looking forward. We're looking forward to a time where you and I will physically sit in front of Christ, where we will drink this cup and eat this bread with Him in the kingdom of heaven, together, where we'll rejoice in that day when suffering is no more, when death is no more, where persecution is no more, where the old things have passed away and finally we will be with Him, reigning with Him forever and ever. And then the fulfillment of all that we do this morning will come. Then we will feast with Him. And so we're looking forward to that. We're saying, Christ, we remember Your death on the cross. We remember all that You've done for us. But we're also looking forward we're looking forward to that day where we will be resurrected, where we'll be in your presence, where we'll see you as you truly are, where we'll see God face to face, and we'll share in this thing known as the wedding supper of the Lamb. We will rejoice with you in the fullest sense of that word as your redeemed sons and daughters living with you forever in the kingdom of heaven. That's exciting. That's pretty exciting to me. Those are the things we're to remember as we take communion. Christ is our Passover Lamb. He's the true bread of life that we need to feed on His words daily. We're reminded of our unity with each other. We're reminded of our commitment to share in Christ's sufferings. And we remember that we're looking forward to a coming feast where there's no longer any death or crying or pain. So with this, these thoughts, let's pray together and then we'll share in this communion and ask the men to come forward. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that as we partake, we wouldn't be content with just the milk of the Word, just the basic understanding of what communion is. But Lord, we recognize these deep levels of meaning that you've provided for us in this celebration that we share. May we be reminded of some of these things as we partake. May we be excited to meet you face to face one day. And in the meantime, Lord, may we be ever grateful for the work which you accomplished on the cross. In Christ's name, amen.